This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Mercado and Manning. I'm James Manning, and my special guest today is not co-hosting. He's the subject of the interview. Andrew Mercado, welcome. Great. I haven't had to do any research this week. (laughs) (laughs) Now, look, you've been very busy. I mean, you always keep busy doing different things, but in particular, I wanted to talk about you've been working on a doco called Outrageous. Um, had its premiere screening this week. I'm lucky enough to have been there. It's brilliant. So well done. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about the project and what is it? I started writing when we went into that first COVID lockdown back in 20, when was it? 2019, 2020, whatever that was. Um, I just watched Visible on Apple TV, which is a five hour docuseries about the, his, the queer history of American TV. And I got to the end and thought that was fantastic, but hang on, we did all of that before the Americans, Australian TV. So I decided to write a book. I had all this time. We were all in lockdown. I started writing this book. And then somewhere quite early on in that process, someone said to me, well, this should be a documentary. And I was I became very aware of this uh, when, you know, I was talking to Courtney Act in, you know, when we initially thought of it as this this huge series it was going to be, it would be Courtney Act would take us on this journey. And, you know, Shane agreed, yes, yes, I'd love to be involved with that. Um, and I was telling him about it and he was enthusiastic. And it wasn't until I actually started an Instagram page and started putting videos on the Instagram page. And he watched a couple of the clips and I remember he sent me a message and he said, oh, now I get it. And that really, you know, qualified it to me. It was like, right, I can write the book and yes, it'll be great and we'll put that out there. But it's really, it seems to work best when people actually see the footage to understand. You don't quite understand how groundbreaking it is until you see it. Yeah. Um, Now I'm going to find out a little bit about you in in a minute, but we'll keep talking about this outrageous. So what's its future now? So there's there's you've done what one episode of you hope might be several more? Yeah. I think that you could easily make it a two or a three hour if you wanted to look at the entire uh history. Um and I think that there's a little bit that goes before this. I, we ended up making it with money that we raised through crowdfunding through Documentary Australia Foundation. We got a grant from Screen New South Wales to write a script. We did a two-hour treatment. And then we had this crowdfunding money and we had a studio and a production partner, Tribal Apes, who pretty much worked, I would say, below cost yeah. uh, and have cut corners for us and not charged us for things so that we could make it with a, the very small amount of money that we had for it. And, you know, I concentrated it onto the 1970s because that is the decade where Australian TV did a whole bunch of things for the first time on TV anywhere in the world. And the rest of the world doesn't know this. And in their defense, they don't know it because they never saw it. Because some of the shows we made in the 70s before Prisoner, and we know that shows like Prisoner and Neighbours would go on to become big hits all around the world. And the shows we made before them that led to them that were even more groundbreaking literally couldn't screen anywhere else in the world because of the nudity, the sexual situations, uh, the language, 
the interracial relationships and, of course, the LGBT content, which was even if you'd taken a show like Number 96, you could have maybe edited out the nudity from it, but you can't take out themes and you can't take out storylines. So it just literally was a show that couldn't travel anywhere around the world. But, you know, I, I think back and I think, wow, if only Channel 4 in the 80s, who were a daring network in the UK, and I think they were the network or maybe it was ITV, but what some network discovered Prisoner, they turned it into a late night cult hit. And the box and number 96 could also have become huge cult hits in the UK, but there was there still would have been that reticence from a UK network, even to screen something at 11 p.m. at night, like, wow, can, can we put this on British TV? Because that's how outrageous we used to be on Australian TV. Yeah. And so the this episode of Outrageous really focuses on number 96, yeah. doesn't it? And and the, what a trailblazer it was. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realise, obviously, I've always loved number 96 and it's actually been a catalyst for a lot of my television career. It, it all roads lead back to that show. So I've obviously researched it and curated DVDs and written a book about it and all of this, but I'd never had a laser focus on just one aspect of the show. And it's very interesting. You take something that you think you know so well and you say, take everything away and let's just look at the queer characters. And suddenly you discover things that you've never noticed before. For example, I suddenly realised that if you looked at all the publicity that came out and, you know, the, someone from that show was on the cover of TV Weeks every other week and you suddenly look at it and go, hang on a second, every iconic couple in the show is getting a cover of TV Week except for the gay couple. And then you actually drill down on that and look at what they say and go, wow, they actually never referred to them as boyfriends. They always referred to them in the magazine as flatmates. It's like, no, they were live-in lovers on the show for three years. They were, Don and Dudley were as iconic a couple as Dorian Herb, Aldo and Roma, everybody else on the show. But you see this press uncomfortableness with it, like, oh, hang on a second. And yet the truth was, we know this, the show is number one in the ratings. Joe Hashem and Chad Haywood are getting all this fan mail. They are hugely popular. The audience is accepting of it. Homosexuality is actually illegal at the time, but somehow it's made respectable on TV five nights a week. But the press is walking away from it going, oh, well, let's exploit their popularity. Let's just not mention that homosexuality bit. Fascinating. The um, Now, you've – I think you might have mentioned before on one of these podcasts that – the research you did, in particular into number 96, you've watched a lot of it, right? Yeah, I actually watched all 600 episodes of it for the first time ever So in do my they life. all exist somewhere? They there? all exist. They, okay. You know, they've all been saved and they've recently been digitised. And because they'd been digitised, I suddenly went, hang on a second. I, because once upon a time you had to, it was just so complicated. You know, there was this two-inch videotape and nobody knew whether or not it had dissolved or deteriorated. But it was 
digitised. Thank you to the National Film and Sound Archive for doing that. They they chose it as being culturally significant yep. and they did it. So I watched it and I'm so glad that I did because it actually uh, made me realise the show was more groundbreaking than I ever realised. A lot of this I was relying on memory from when I was a teenager um, and there was also this, this childhood memory to it. So, for example, I could – it was a show that I was only occasionally allowed to watch particularly in the early years. I was 10 years old. I was Catholic. My parents were, you are not allowed to watch that show. But there was a fascination with it for me and I kept wearing them down. Sometimes on a special occasion, your parents would have friends around on a Friday night and all us kids would go into the lounge room and go, great, this is our opportunity to watch number 96 while we're not supervised. So I saw bits and pieces. When I watched the 600 colour episodes, you'd suddenly get to a moment, you can't remember a storyline, you can't remember something, but suddenly there's a moment, a scene, and you go, wow, I remember this. But it's interesting how your memory plays tricks on you. So, for example, I had always remembered this moment in it where Rowena Wallace's character goes into the surf at night, gets dumped by a wave and gets carried out of the surf and ends up in a wheelchair. Now, I would have sworn to you, black and blue, that she went swimming at night. When I watched that scene, it happened in broad daylight And I thought, why did I think that that happened at night? And then I go back to the kitchen that I used to sit in watching our small black and white TV and I went, well, because I saw it in black and white and it was dark. You know, so it's fascinating to see those moments, just moments, just go, oh, my God, I remember this. But the truth was that there was a whole bunch of stuff in that show that I had not realised seeing as a kid. And there was also a whole lot of historical stuff about that show that we have been, I was able to say to Ian McLean, who writes the website, and Nigel Giles, who writes the books on it, hey, guys, we got something wrong. We've been saying that this something never happened. It did happen. I've just seen it. It did happen. So we're, we've been able to correct the record. And when, when we correct the record, we've actually discovered that the, the show just kept going and going, even in its last, its last few months on the air, when it wasn't rating that well, they were getting a little bit desperate. They basically threw everything at but the kitchen sink at it. And as they were doing this, they were doing all these TV first. Four-letter words were being said. And going, what? I'm researching it going, did anyone ever say a four-letter word on a drama in, in anywhere in the world on TV? No, they didn't. Here it was on number 96. But because it was happening towards the end of the show, there weren't as many eyeballs on it. Certainly the broadcasting authority wasn't watching it. And maybe the network executives at Channel 10 weren't keeping an eye on it. And they just went, let's just go for broke and just started doing all of this stuff and started started showing same-sex kisses between the men and all of this stuff that we thought had never happened because we were relying on evidence from the first year of the show, 1972, when there was a lot of attention on it. Hang on, there's gay characters in that show, but they are not allowed to touch They're not allowed to sit on a bed together. They're not allowed to have their shirts off in front of each other. There can be no... But then you see five years later that all that's gone out the window and it's like, get into bed, go for it. It's crazy. Just out of interest, if journalists or historians want to see that stuff, can you 
apply to watch it online or have you actually got to go to the... You've got to go to the National Film and Sound Archive. So it's, you know, it's, it, it takes absolute forever yeah. to do that. But, you know, it was just, I just went there... I have to do this and I'm so glad that I did because, you know, it's, it's really, really important that you get the facts right on things. And people's memories after 50 years, nobody expects people to remember things correctly. You know, and, and you know, there are some people um, associated with that show where I, I tell them things and they go, I, I've got no memory of that at all. And I go, that's okay. I don't expect you to remember that. Okay, look, I'll get to talk about you in a minute. One more quick thing about Outrageous. You had Joe Hashem yeah. return to Australia because I believe he doesn't live here anymore and he was a guest at the, the screening yeah. you had. What an incredible man that he so is. So where does he live now? He lives in Malaysia and he runs a theatre group with his wife uh, in Kuala Lumpur and he's very, very successful in theatre over there and he mentors the young actors and they have a restaurant within their space and he was telling me that, you know, Malaysia is a country that isn't huge on LGBT rights but that he is seeing now a lot more young queer people who are being more open about their sexuality and he said they actually have a restaurant within their theatre and he's seeing it a lot more. And so I've guessed that I would describe Joe Hassam as being the true definition of a, of a queer ally. This is a straight actor that was cast in a role in 1972 when homosexuality was illegal and the producers of the show said to him, how do you feel about playing a gay man on national TV? And he sort of winced and they said, do you have a problem with that? And he said, well, yes, it's, I have lots of gay friends and I want to make sure that we are respectful towards them. And of course, that was exactly what the producers wanted to hear because that's the type of portrayal they wanted. So not only do you get the actor who goes into it with the right, you know, sense of what he should be doing, but when the show takes off and becomes this huge hit, he is besieged with fan mail. He's got young girls writing to him. He's got mothers offering up their daughters to him saying, I've got a daughter that can turn you straight. But he's also got fathers that are writing for him saying, I think my son's gay, what should I do? And he's got young gay men, particularly from country, small towns that are writing to him saying, I live in a small town all alone. You're giving me hope that there is a place, a bigger city that I can go to where a gay man will be accepted by community. Now, the production company that dominated a lot of the Australian drama scene, Crawford's, mm. this wasn't a Crawford show, is that correct? No, it wasn't. This, uh, Number 96 was a Cash Harmon production and Crawford's, in the wake of the success of Number 96, created their own adult serial, The Box, yeah. um, which was set in the TV industry and based on a lot of real people, which is why Jock Blair went to his grave refusing to say who the characters were in real life because it was that close to the bone. Um, and The Box deliberately chose, you had on number 96, you had the gay man who wasn't a limp-wristed caricature. He was just a regular guy that nobody could actually pick that he was gay. And the box did something completely the opposite of that, which I understand why they did. They had a very flamboyant director who worked in TV called Lee, played by Paul Caro, who did. I mean, in fact, Paul Caro's comment to me was, I flapped around so much on the set of the box, I thought I might start flying. Um, and, you know, 
Uh, Bill Harmon, the producer of Number 96, who was straight, he actually got really upset by that. And he said, you know, we've done so much to advance the cause of gay rights and they're all unwinding it with that character. But you know what? In Crawford's defence, that gay director was based on a real gay director at Crawford's at the time. And there were, there were then and today gay directors working in TV. And uh, it's the skill of Paul Caro and his portrayal, because just like Joe Hashem, he caught on with the audience and he was voted most popular actor in the TV Week Logie Awards. So you had these two very different portrayals, but both of them work. Just, just quickly to, to end on the historical bit, the, my memory as a, as a young male growing up, um, was that the, the titillation was marketed a bit harder for the box, whereas number 96 was more a, a, a broad soap, if you like. Yeah. But, but titillation was often the, 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 the hook that try and get viewers for the box. Yeah. No, number 96 was the first to sort of do this, this nudity. And that was all very specifically designed. You know, Channel 10 were on their last legs. They're on the verge of bankruptcy. If number 96 had failed, Channel 10 may not have survived that. This was a do or die effort. And they knew that in 1972, the mood in the country was that people were ready for something a bit daring. And number 96 fit that bill. And so, of course, then that becomes a template for how to launch a new series. In And so in 1974, Reg Grundy does the class of 74 and Crawford's do the box. And both of those shows get launched the same way. These shows are shocking. These shows are outrageous. The box in particular, Class of 74, really got wrapped over the knuckles because they were making a show in a G-rated time slot for 6.30 and the Broadcasting Control Board just came down and said, you cannot have bikies deflowering virgins in tents in the first episode of a show aimed at children. You have gone too far. And they had to go back to the drawing room and completely rework that show as it, because that they just went, we're not doing that. The box was different though. The box was screening at 9pm at night. So the box went even further and said, this is outrageous. Do you know that they had topless girls walking down the streets of Melbourne in lunchtime rush, wearing billboards saying, watch the box tonight around their waists as girls walked topless through the streets of Melbourne in 1974. It's no surprise that Fred Nile and family groups were saying that this is the beginning of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it was really, it was really starting to freak people out. All right. Now, look, Andrew Mercado, how did you get interested in all this stuff? I mean, when, I mean, you obviously watched it, but how did you, did you fall into a career in the entertainment industry by accident or did you sort of set out? What, what was your first job that? In the entertainment. I always wanted to work in TV. It's all I wanted to do, but I couldn't tell you what I wanted to do in TV. And so because I couldn't specify that I wanted to work in the camera department or anything like that, it was sort of brushed to the side. And the, the truth is that I look back now, I realise now that my mother was deliberately pushing me away from that because that did not fit her view of a good nine to five job. She didn't want me working as a freelancer. My mother wanted me to work in the public service, work at a nine to five job and retire with a huge superannuation package because that's the era she came from. And my lofty ideas of TV didn't fit into that. So when I finished school, I 
worked in tourism. I worked for the Queensland Tourism and Travel Corporation. I, you know, it was the first job I applied for. I got it and I spent 13 years. But the whole time I was doing that, the TV and movie stuff was bubbling away. And I ended up in Canada. And while I was working in Canada promoting Queensland, they had opened Movie World Studios. And I was in LA doing the location expo, saying to the filmmakers in Hollywood, come to Queensland, we've got this new studio, we've got these incredible locations. And so when I, then they shut the Canada office down, I came back to Australia. And by that stage, I just went, that's it. No more tourism. I want to work in TV. And so I just went down to Movie World Studios and said, I want a job here. And this is where it gets really funny because I'd been working with the heads of the studios, the big guys at the top, and they all said, yeah, 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 we'll find you a job. Nothing ever happened. So in desperation, because I had no work, I became a volunteer at the Brisbane International Film Festival, which was just starting. And when we were there, there there were all these volunteers and one of those volunteers got a job on Paradise Beach, which was being made at the studios, as the runner. And the runner is kind of the lowest person on the food chain. They drive around and get people's lunch and drive things to set and all of that. But this girl overheard a conversation that they were needing to find a new location manager. And so she rang me up and she said, the job you want is about to be, ring this person. And so I rang her and said, you know, I'm looking for work. And she said, oh, yeah, what do you do? And I said, I'm a location manager. And she can you be here at 10am in the morning? And they had my foot in the door. And that's how I got in there. So I was location manager on Paradise Beach, which I was so happy. It was a soap. It was what I'd always wanted to work on. You know, I'd always had this recurring dream that I lived in a TV show. I, you know, I'd, I would wake up, I'd be having a dream that I lived in Knott's Landing and then I would wake up and go, oh, that's just a TV show. I don't live there at all. And then I started working, then I started living in Paradise Beach and I never, ever had those dreams again because the dream had come true. No, but Paradise Beach didn't last a long no. time, did it? No, I was so upset. I was there, barely there uh, several months and they pulled the pin on it. And it was so awful because the show was actually going up in the ratings. The problem with it was that Channel Channel 9, 5.30 p.m., wrong audience lead in for the 6 p.m. news. The kids were then turning the channel to to Channel 10. So they cancelled Paradise Beach to bring back The Price is Right. Um, Better lead in for the news. And it's so awful because to think that that was a show, because as we were doing, wrapping those last months of Paradise Beach, we were starting to get tourists. Paradise Beach had been pre-sold to America where it had flopped terribly, but it had been pre-sold to Europe and the UK and it was struggling in the UK, but it was really, really starting to take off in Nordic countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, because those tourists were coming to Main Beach, which had Paradise Beach. Oh, we are from Sweden. We have come to meet Paradise Beach. So, you know, the potential for that show to have run for 20 years. How many episodes did they end up making? They only made like 130 episodes. Only 130. Yeah, you know. But then when Paradise Beach ended, um, the Nick McMahon from Village Road Show came to me and said, look, we're going to do another show. Hang around. 
when we do the new show, I want you to do the publicity for it. And then that became Pacific Drive. So I did. I just basically cooled and, and went, went, went back to Brisbane and, you know, found odd jobs to do waiting for this show to get up. And as to his word, it, it happened and I got, I got a job there. And how long did that last? Well, then that, the same thing sort of happened there. Again, there was this show that we were making that the critics hated it and, oh, God, it was bouncing Bloody around critics. at times. Like, oh, I know, I know. No. But then I realised that there was something actually not going right there, that we were making all these shows. The shows were, were Paradise Beach is a show that should have been on Channel 10, you know, and Pacific, Pacific Drive should have been a show. You know, it was all wrong. So by that stage then I could see that Foxtel had started up and I just looked at it and thought, this is going to be like the golden age of TV. If I move to Sydney and try and get in on the ground floor of Foxtel, maybe I could get a job as a producer. Maybe I could do something. And so I came down. Again, I sat here in Sydney for six months, waiting, 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 started writing the TV column for the Sydney Star Observer, got invited to a function for Channel V. And at the function for Channel V, someone said, Channel V's looking for a new publicist. And I said, oh, who do I speak to? And they go speak to that woman over there, Sally Burley. So all of a sudden, boom, I'm in. And then I get that foot in the door at Foxtel. Okay. Now, how did you segue from doing PR to getting on air? Yeah, so we started, I was doing publicity at Channel V and Jabba was doing a show and we were churning out Hours and hours so of live Jabba TV. So was big name. Yeah. VJ, they call them VJs? They called them VJs. VJs. It was in the early days. There was Nathan Harvey and Jabba and they were churning out all of this live TV. And, you know, one of the shows we were doing was a late night chat show called The Joint, 10.30 at night at Piermont. Now, who are you going to get to come down to Piermont at 10.30 to midnight? You'd get a band to come down. It was a music channel. You'd get a band. But where were the guests? So they said to me, oh, God, can you, because I was writing the TV column, they said, hey, why don't you come do your TV column on The Joint with Jabba? Yeah. And I said, great. And that was actually a gay TV segment. And then that morphed into let's do gay gay issues, let's do gay music and all of this. So this is when I realised that I was on a channel that was going towards young kids and I thought, now this is actually important. I need to really think about this because this is a chance for me to be a positive role model in a way that Joe Hashem had been for me on number 96. Um, And so I started doing that and then one day they came to me and said, we're going to get ourselves a new pu- publicist. We want you to be, do it, become an entertainment reporter full time. And so then I created then that world of movies and red carpet and going to the Logie Awards so that we had a bit of pop culture going alongside the music. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, so then, Dan, did you work on Max as well, which yeah. was the, the sort of a little bit more adult music channel. Yeah, Music Max came along there and then I became the first VJ on Max. But then when I moved into the Max role, it it was all music. Yeah. And, you know, I after a few years, I just started going, I don't think this is quite me because I was always really comfortable meeting Cindy Lauper or Duran Duran, all the people I'd grown up with. I could uh, interview them off the back of my top of my head, but it was. I thought it was really important that on a music network should have someone that was really their their priority was music, and my priority has ne- was never music. It was TV first, then movie, then music. So that's when I went. I'm going to move away from music. Max, I resigned, and I thought I'm going to move in, try and create a space for me where I do more TV. Yeah. Okay. 
And did that happen or did you, my memory is you went to journalism? Well, I did. Well, see, what had been happening was all through the Channel V then, I was writing my first book, Super Aussie Soaps. And that had happened because as soon as I got into Foxtel, I walked around to every channel and went, why won't you put Australian shows on your channel? Why won't you screen number 96? TV One took the bait. They did the best of number 96 for three weeks. Someone watching that then came to me from Pluto Press and said, hey, do you know about any other soaps? And I was like, (laughs) yes. Do you want to write a book on this? Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now you did a series for Showtime. Yeah. Showtime, yeah. The, the, which was the an playlist. Australian movie channel. Yeah. Yeah. And they did that. That was very clever because they realised that in terms of promotion that you could, every promo basically says, watch this TV show because it's great. And Showtime was screening a lot of shows that were complicated. And they went, we actually think it's better to have a segment that talked about a show. And you could, you were allowed to say, I don't like this show. I think it's a bit bleak but maybe it's your thing. And they just wanted a more honest approach to how to promote their shows. And so they created the playlist where we could come along and talk about TV and be brutally honest about something, even if it was on Showtime. I like it or I don't like it. You know, I don't think it matters. I think critics, who cares if a critic says they don't like it? Ultimately, the person will go, I'll still watch it and make up my own mind, as I'm sure they do when they listen to our podcast all the time. Uh, And on your journey to before Media Week snapped you up for <laughs> podcasting and uh, and your column, um, you you worked for a newspaper and magazine. Yeah, yeah. I wrote the TV column in the Sydney te- uh, Sunday Telegraph um, for a couple of years, which was huge. You know, that was the biggest selling yeah. newspaper at the time. And over the years, it's like, you know, I've d- dipped in and out and, and done lots and lots of writings. And I actually describe myself as a writer now because you know, it's, I've got so much TV information in the head. I can just go bang and it's out. I I can put everything into context because I've spent so much time studying the history of it. Fascinating stuff. Look that. So look out for outrageous. There'll be, we'll have news here um, in the future about the, the progress for if there's more episodes and how you can see that, that, the existing episodes, so we'll keep people updated with that. In the meantime, we'll um, we'll hear you regularly on the um, Macardo and Manning podcast every week. Thank you, James. Good on you, Andrew. Thank you.